The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for that is Brad uh, Matheny, uh, who has got some really interesting uh, experience and thoughts when it comes to markets and uh, trading strategy development. Uh, Brad, introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, who are you? What's your background? How did you get interested involved in markets? And uh, what drew you to automated trading as an approach? Sure. I'll give you the synopsis. Uh in 1986, roughly, I started trading. I was working for myself as a computer consultant developing code, and uh, it was a great time to be learning and trading. I didn't really know what I was doing. I uh, didn't make a lot of money, really. Um, and in 1989, a, a gentleman I was uh, consulting with as a client showed me a book on Japanese candlesticks, and I started developing the first automated Japanese candlestick interpretation software called the Candlestick Forecaster many years ago. This was in 1989-90. In 1990, we launched it, got me fully involved in this industry. I was kind of a newbie still, very much a computer geek. Uh, and after about seven years of running that business, uh, my partner and I separated, and I started doing consulting for people in, the, in this field. And I basically turned into a private consultant, building trading strategies and uh, automated systems for clients all over the world, and have been doing that since 1997 until now. Uh, I've had a, a, a great wealth of experience. I've built thousands of different systems. Some work, some don't work. I tell everyone it's the hardest thing in the world to build an, a, a functional automated trading system that works in any market environment. But of course, Michael, throughout the 25 plus years of building out all these strategies following the markets, I've been able to explore many different concepts, trading theories, uh, and build my own systems. So on top of not only learning and building and experiencing, uh, much like you, I'm sure, I've been able to delve into building anything I want at any time I want because I have the skill set to do so. Okay, so, so a client comes to you and says, listen, I want to come up with some strategy designed to do uh, X, Y, Z. Um, presumably, you're, you're back-testing it, um, and sometimes a client doesn't quite know if what they're asking has uh, any validity. How do you go about uh, translating a request into an actual you know, rules-based approach? Right. So if someone comes to me with an idea, maybe they see something on the chart or they've got a fully flushed out strategy. The very first thing I tell them to do is get me some chart examples, show me how it works, 
and write the rules as they understand it. If they can't do that, then I have to flush out the rule-based system myself and, and kind of help them build what they want. Now, ideally, Michael, what we would do at that point is we would uh, start a prototyping of the strategy, which would take the basic rules, put it into a system like TradeStation or some other platform that's easy and cheap for them to get started. And then we would build a simple back tester showing if there's any real validity to it. And from there, if they wanted to move forward, we could go as far as they wanted to uh, in terms of uh, flushing out uh, trade management, risk controls, uh, what I call in-trade management, the most important side of any trading system, because in, in theory, you can throw a dart or flip a coin and, and try to decide to go long or short. But uh, how you manage that trade as the trade is uh, actually playing out determines whether it's going to be a winner or a loser, because you're going to see market movement up and down no matter what after you enter a position. But in reality, I can take it from you know prototyping uh, a concept to full automation across thousands of symbols if someone wants to the price of course gets deeper and deeper the deeper you want to go and, and i think you would probably both agree that you know there are not that many true um, trading systems that are based on you know a repeatable anomaly so to speak you know there's a lot of randomness there's some data mining so how do you go about determining what's real and what's not um you know on the one hand you got a client wanting you to do something but you know, presumably what there have been instances, instances where what you're being asked to do in reality uh, is probably built more on randomness than something that's repeatable. Right. In, in summary, because I'm an NDA with a lot of these people, I'll tell you generally of the thousands of systems that I've built, I've only seen five or six that are worth their weight in gold. That gives you an idea that, you know, a lot of times trying to build a trading system or trying to build any type of a, a system around quantitative rule-based strategies is very difficult unless you do two things. Focus on failure, where the system fails, and containing the risk. And then number two, what I mentioned earlier, active in-trade management. Very critical to understand those things are what makes the strategy successful or not. Now, then you get into the next stage, which is truly quantifiable adaptive learning technology, having the strategy if it's technical based and not, you know, daytime price uh, anomaly uh, type structures, which are which are different types of strategies. Anyway, the, the reality is, is that if it's a technical based strategy or a price based strategy, then you want to try to adapt to the volatility that you're seeing in the market and the type of trend that you're seeing in the market. Markets, for example, as you're well aware, we're only moving, you know, a half a percent, one percent, maybe on an average uh, uh, price range on the SPY. Um, uh, four, five, six years ago. Now we're talking one, two, sometimes 3% on a regular basis. So we've got a lot more volatility now. And these types of trends uh, and changes in price activity can throw a, a trading system into turmoil. But again, uh, the simple answer is that most systems fail because people, they get focused on when it works and they don't understand the risks involved when something when it doesn't work for example i've seen clients run a system make a ton of money and then leverage up only to see the system go into a 60-day or 30-day lag period and blow up their account the real idea is if you're going to build a trading system and again i've only seen four or five that really work in any market condition beyond that it's almost impossible uh to build a, an automated trading system that really works does that does that differ by 
uh, asset class, you know, are certain asset classes better, more prone or better, better, uh, more likely to result in better trading type of results? Yes, some, in my opinion, depending on the, the strategy, you know, there's, again, without going into detail, if you, for example, one of the strategies that, that I'm working on a client with a client right now um, has got a high success rate, about an 87% success rate day trading the NQ and the ES. Uh, now, the risk containment level of that system, because of the way it works, is a little wider than most people would want. So hypothetically, we might be risking you know, 40 points to try to get uh, 15 points on a target. So there's a there's a, a active in-trade management that allows the system to perform very, very well. And then there's a, a risk containment system that allows us to potentially, if the situation is right, leverage into losing trades. So hypothetically, we get into a trade, we lose 20 points on the trade. If the, if the situation sets up correctly, we can leg in on another position, move our target down so that a slight a slight reversion, a slight uptick on that trade would put us back into the profit. So that's active in trade management, trying to turn losers into winners or trying to mitigate losses. But again, yes, certain asset classes have to be adapted differently simply because you know, you might have spike bars around CPI or or jobs data or Fed news. Uh, and that volatility, if it's technically based, uh, a system that can't adapt to that increased price volatility could put you at severe risk. Now, we've also done things where we have a thing called a no trade date file, which is kind of like a calendar. And we can pick dates and times around future FOMC meetings or news data or earnings where we can tell the system to cut risk or to eliminate trading altogether around certain volatility events. And that helps us contain risk that's, uh, that you know is unknown. We don't know what's going to happen around an FOMC meeting. We don't know if we're going to get a 200-point bar in the NQ. So we just don't trade that time frame, and, and we let the market go back to normal. So you mentioned there's you know, exactly. four or five. Yeah, so you mentioned there's maybe like four or five different uh, strategies, right, that, that you've seen have – any real merit. Uh, what are those for the audience? Or at least what are some of the commonalities across the things that you've seen that actually do have validity and, and, and work? Uh, okay. Commonalities would be extremely competent risk management. Uh, and then I would uh, say that the secondary function about them is that they're highly targeted systems. So you're not trying to, you know, you can't run a, uh, a two-minute day trading uh, NQ system as a swing trading system, and you can't run a swing trading system as a two-minute, uh, you know, NQ system. So they're highly targeted. They're kind of like the way I explain it to people is they're especially newbies. Is that you don't run an F1 race car on a, a rally racing track or a dirt track. They're just not designed for it. They'll fall apart. And you don't run, uh, you know, a, a dirt track vehicle against F1 race cars. It's just not going to work. You'll lose. So ideally, you're building a specific vehicle for the specific purpose uh, and not trying to be the, the one strategy fits all. The best strategies, in my opinion, are the ones that are highly targeted, highly quantifiable, and look for what I call price anomalies. Now, there are different types of strategies. So there's a reversion type strategy. There's a breakout trend following strategy. And then you also have the range-based strategy 
type of trading system as well. Now, beyond that, you have what I call the anomaly systems that look for a good example of that would be something that looks for maybe a, a 2x or a 3x standard deviation price anomaly and then trades the reversion back to the mean. Um, something like that would be an anomaly system. Um, and these are the primary types of systems, but as long as they're highly focused and have good risk containment and in-trade management, then I think you're going to have a successful strategy. Beyond the the actual success of the strategy then becomes management. How do you deploy capital efficiently around volatility periods and around extreme uh, price movement to be able to manage the system efficiently. For so, for example, you know, a lot of times I will build or I will recommend the client build some sort of an ongoing uh, containment system. If the system hypothetically reaches a, a daily risk tolerance or a weekly risk tolerance, just to shut it down, wait for the next week, because there are times when the markets do very, very well on an intraday basis, and there are times when the markets, like we just had a couple of very flat days. Unless your system is capable of trading those flat days, those could turn into losers and you could have five or six of those or 10 or 15 of those in a row. So the idea is, is you don't want your system to be excessively trading through a risk period. You have to have some kind of a mechanism that says, okay, shut it down. We're not making money. We want to just wait for the next week or until the conditions change where it can start to make money. And then we'll turn it back on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, especially around sort of the, the point about the actual execution, right? It's like people can see a, a trading strategy in front of them, but just like your earlier point, right? You got to be careful about sizing because if you if it's working, there's a temptation to leverage, and then no strategy is perfect all the time, and will have its own unique drawdown characteristics. Now, part of automated trading strategies, of course, is time frame. Right now, I'm I tend to be a little bit uh, cynical of the idea that one can create a real long term. Uh, automated trading strategy that uh, the short term is far more observable. Uh, and of course, there's a risk there of noise versus signal. But talk about um, just time intervals uh, in terms of what you've seen work and what doesn't. Is there a point where, you know, it's too short, it's too noisy? Is there a point where it's too long, too lagged? Is there a sweet spot? Well, yeah, um, there are periods of time that I consider and it basically comes down to the system and how it's designed to work. So, you know, a reversion strategy is designed to operate around a range-based uh, model. So as long as something trades within a, a defined range, it could be 20 points, could be 100 points, um, you know, a reversion strategy will typically try to trade that range efficiently. Where reversion strategy fails is where you get into extreme trending, straight up, straight down kinds of things. Um, in theory, as far as intervals – you know, I do not believe going to short term, one minute, 20 second, 15 second charts provides any real advantage other than churning and feeding money to the broker. Um, I do believe my personal opinion that anywhere from a two minute to a 10 minute on an intraday basis is ideal. And I love daily and weekly charts for swing trading simply because, you know, the risk is fairly contained. You're not trading over excessively uh, and you can catch some nice little moves in an eight to 12 hour time frame. Um, but every every trader is different. Like I said, I've seen everything from, you know, literally 10 second bond systems to, uh, you know, monthly systems trading. Uh, and again, everybody has a different way to try to go at it. I'm not, again, I will tell you that of the four or five systems I've seen that really hold their weight, 
Um, two of them, three of them are intraday, uh, meaning trading down on one, two, three minute charts. And the others are more swing trading, tra trading on you know, 10, 20, 30 minute charts. There's a number of day trading systems, end of day, meaning swing trading, that work very, very well. And that's, you know, they're, they're quantifiable. So remember, it's not just one layer. This is not just a, you know, a candlestick trigger or a, a breakout of Donchians or a Bollinger Band trigger. These are multiple layers. There's a lot of real filtering and risk controls, VIX controls, um, daily range controls that are built into these that actually tell us whether or not it's opportunistic to take the trade or not. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Now, presumably, obviously, <clears throat> you're you're doing more than just automated uh, trading. At least I assume you are. You've got your own thoughts on markets, um, and I'm always <clears throat> hesitant to think about sort of switching an automated strategy to a different automated strategy based on cycle. But I'm sure some try and do that. Um, I want to get your just kind of broad, top-down thoughts on where we are in markets um, and if your view on markets impacts the usage of a particular automated trading strategy. Okay. My general view on the market, and I know you've been following some of my, my comments on Twitter, but my general view on the market is, and I'll tell I'll, I'll state it in the best way I can as simply as possible. I believe we've already begun a contraction event on hard assets, physical assets, gold, silver houses, what have you. Um, and we are seeing an unwinding of excesses that took place from 2018 to the peak in end of 2021. And I believe that uh, unless there is some major catalyst event that creates further downside risk, I believe we are going to move into an extended 18 to 24-month consolidation period lasting through the end of the 2024 presidential election cycle possibly seeing a breakout upward trend into 2025 after we get a new president and new policies, whatever that may be. Um, I do believe that the next 18 months are going to be very consolidated. Um, roughly, uh, let's say uh, 40, 50 percent chance of a downside event taking place. But again, that would have to be some sort of a U.S. catalyst type of event, some kind of a banking crisis or a major real estate crisis or something that actually affects the U.S. market. I believe that the U.S. consumer is very strong. We've seen evidence in the local economics that I'm seeing out here in California. We're seeing uh, evidence of that in the data that's coming out. We're seeing consumers still actively engage in big-ticket purchases, although at-risk consumers, the lower-end consumers, are being squeezed right now. So again, as long as the cash-rich environment, which was created over the last five, six years, provides enough of a buffer through this contraction period, which is, again, about 18 months to go in the contraction period, maybe a bit longer, I think the downside risks are fairly limited unless we get some sort of a catalyst event that blows the whole 
in, a, in the floor, so to say, and then we'll get a bigger downside move. So that's what I'm expecting going forward is a, a broad consolidation in the markets until the end of 2024, then an upward move into a cycle peak around 2028, 2029, maybe 2030. And then we have a big concern for risk after 2030, 31, 32. We get a bigger uh, potential downside move potent, uh, cycle based on cycle patterns. I wonder if the um, if this death ceiling is is the uh, is the downside event, sorry, that could break that, um, and it's you know maybe happening faster than people thought. But I keep going back to you never know. I mean, politicians are very good at at fucking things up. Uh, so you know we know that somebody's going to get. I agree. Yeah, but but there certainly is a lot of betting that's going on with credit default swaps around. Um, something bad coming uh, and and short term quick, quickly um I, I think a lot of people expect a collapse i think a lot of people really expect the markets to collapse based on what we saw in 2000 and what we saw in 2008 i mean if you were to read the the basic telltale signs of we've had a big ramp up in real estate prices the feds raised rates aggressively the feds trying to stomp out uh excess inflation the natural reaction is, based on what we saw over the last 20 years, is it's going to create some sort of a crash event. There, I think what a lot of people miss is the fact that there's been a huge wealth effect created over the last 20, 25, 30 years that a lot of people don't realize. You know, someone that's in their their 70s or 80s right now has withstood the wealth effect from essentially 1980s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and now into the early 2020s, they may have seen a, a 7, 8, 900% wealth effect created that acts as a buffer against some real crisis event right now. But yes, you're right. The, the debt ceiling could throw, a, in my opinion, a temporary blip because I don't believe the U.S. is going to default. They may play chicken. It may go two weeks into some government shutdown because they can't decide on what to do. But I think ultimately it'll be resolved. When you think about sort of uh, tail events or you do back testing on you know, environments where there are these tail events, um, how do automated strategies tend to perform off of that? I, I think there's a um, there's a nuance, right, in terms of the way people think about automation. It's obviously more than just signal. It's also you know opportunity set. So. Uh, is there anything in your testing in your work that would suggest that certain trading strategies are more likely to get tail events right than not? Uh, referring to broad, let's call it broad volatility type tail right, events, exactly. that, that is one of the most dangerous types of events. Because again, the, the law of averages or the law of mean tends to operate in every technical indicator that's known to man. And I'm sure you're well aware of this from your father's teachings and your own skill. You know, general technical analysis operates around the construct of a, a proper sine wave type of price activity. And when you don't get that type of sine wave, sine wave activity, when you get an extreme volatility event or volume event where, you know, ranges shoot up seven, 800, 900, a thousand percent from normal, it throws a technical base system into chaos uh, for a period of time. So I will tell you that there, in my opinion, uh, the only systems that will work in that type of environment, assuming the the law of averages comes back into play and the, the price actually reverts back to normal, would be the anomaly system. 
typical reversion breakout systems, as long as they have some sort of uh, risk management and intra proper in-trade management, they can work. But again, the volatility becomes too excessive for them to operate. It's kind of like a bull in a china shop. You know, it's fine as long as everything stays calm. But if the bull goes aggro, which is what these volatility events are, then, you know, things tend to break. And that's what happens most of the time through these tail event volatility modes. They tend to break systems. The only systems that are capable of handling them very efficiently are what I call the anomaly event. So that would be hypothetically a system that's sitting waiting for a 4x standard deviation price move and it gets it and can trade the reversion back to a mean with a high degree of risk. So that would be something that could function in that type of environment and set and wait for that and have a high degree of accuracy. But traditional systems around short-term moves just don't work that well during uh, volatility events. You, you know, you get, for example, we recently saw some volatility events in the NQ where we were seeing, you know, 40 to 120 uh, point uh, tick moves in seconds with a, a 30 to 40 point spread in the NQ. Those types of systems can really chew up a system that's trading a, a five point stop. You just, you're going to get eaten up. Um, since you mentioned the wealth effect, I always go back to the point that um, the wealth effect is primarily the housing wealth effect. Right? I mean, there have been a lot of studies, even the Federal Reserve has done, that shows that you know, consumer sentiment changes more based on. The value of one's home than the value of their stock portfolio, and that makes sense because most people, you know, are homeowners, not necessarily stock owners, uh, in the way that we tend to think. Um, what's your sense of housing here? Um, I know you mentioned the California side and what you're visibly seeing, but um, it's been confounding. But I always go back to this point that inventory gets solved by by uh, fear of others selling and uh, marking your neighborhood uh, lower as a result. Well, I think the, I would like to point out that you hit the nail on the head in some of your comments recently that, you know, housing is a big component of the U.S. economy. Not only does it provide a wealth effect, do people feel safe and secure when their house prices are going up uh, and they have a low mortgage payment, um, but it acts as a driver of consumer demand, you know, when when people are working when uh, handymen and, and people are flipping homes or, or turning homes on a regular basis in an upward trending market, it drives a whole host of external consumer function. And consumers make up roughly 70% of GDP. So when, when we're in a, a good economic mode uh, and housing is strong and, and appreciated, we get a very solid growth economy. Now, I believe what's happening right now is that we've got this excess speculative bubble. A lot of flippers, a lot of Airbnbers, a lot of people holding these things as short-term rentals. Uh, and I believe it's probably going to take another three years for this to wind down. Uh, what the Fed is doing is they're obviously raising interest rates, putting pressure on consumers. The pressure, in my opinion, at least what I see, I'm not seeing consumers very concerned right now about the Fed, even though they should be, you know, they should be concerned enough to start tightening their belts a bit. But I believe, Michael, that we're not going to see a a crash in housing. I believe what we're going to see is an extended 10, maybe 12, maybe 15 percent a year decline in house prices as the Fed continues to put pressure on the market. And that's going to equate to a, a 35 to 40 percent price decrease over the next three plus years. I think the Fed is fully capable of handling regional banking crisis. 
and putting pressure on the market to unwind inflation, I think the difference we're going to see this time is it's not going to be a crash. It's going to more. It's going to be more like the late seventies, early eighties, uh, high interest rate period where housing was pr- fairly flat, or fairly similar to the early nineties, where housing was fairly flat in a market that there was no appreciation and there was moderate depreciation in housing. I think it's just kind of uh, think of it as an unwinding, a very calm unwinding of asset speculation. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, which is basically a correction in time, right? That that that's not sort of to your point, sort of a gradual. Uh, it's more of a gradual type of you know wind down as opposed to a sudden. And I get it. It's like you know, yeah, it's 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 all regional. It's all based on zip code. And I always get back to it's regional until it's uh, systemic. Um, you, you see that I tweet it out a lot, and it could become systemic. It, it well, could it, become correct. systemic. All it yeah. takes is a is a crack, some kind of a crack, and we could be into some type of a collapse mode. But I don't. Right now, I think there's enough of a cash buffer throughout the world. Actually, after the zero interest rate policies over the last five, six, seven years, I think we're just working through that what I call wealth effect buffer. No one's really freaked out about anything, although people do believe the markets are going to crash. But I think people are just you know. I've got money in my house. I've got money in my bank account. I got money in my my four hundred one k. I got a job. Everything is good until something cracks. Right. So it's, it's, it goes back to that line I've used before. Right? Nothing matters until it matters, and then when it matters, it's the only thing that matters. You know, you can you can get sudden waterfalls with you know just small drips. Um, I think it's kind of the way to say it. Okay, my opinion is the unwinding. So my, again, capital. My my critical. What I've learned many years ago is that capital operates as a function of its own derived of objectives. It's always looking for the safest place, most secure place to derive some type type of return. It could be two percent, ten percent, doesn't matter. And capital moves around the world looking for the best returns in the safest, most secure environment. I believe the shifting that's going to take place over the next 18 to 24 months is going to provide a number of opportunities. For example, in my research right now, the foreign markets, European markets, are actually moving higher more aggressively than the U.S. markets. And I would expect something very similar to 2013, 14, 15, where we go through a series of of uh, you know uh, price advances in various markets trying to move forward. Uh, and for example, foreign markets possibly uh, foreign assets. Michael's mentioned that lumber is very very low. This could eventually turn around. Currencies will likely turn around over the next uh, seven to twelve months if the dollar continues to slide a little bit. So we're gonna where we would be looking for is money to move away from traditional strength. Uh, which would be hypothetically the U.S. dollar, uh, the Japanese yen has traditionally been U.S. or some sort of a global market strength, and move into undervalued assets. Undervalued assets could be technology, innovation, foreign markets, foreign currencies, 
maybe even foreign debt markets if things start to look a little bit more rosy. But we've got to watch for these these uh, changes in structure and event going forward. It's not going to be very clear right now. I don't know where it's going to come, but it's, it's going to come outside the U.S., not within the U.S., in my opinion. Um, as far as indicators, you know, you could you could look for, obviously, um, volume trends. You could look for Fibonacci price theory structures making essentially a series of new highs and new lows. Once these moves happen, like we saw in 2013-14 and even uh, back in uh, uh, the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, what you're going to see is that you're going to see these assets will move over a period of possibly 7 to 14 months, top out and then roll back down. So money will roll into these undervalued assets. They will move for possibly 6 to 12 months, maybe a bit longer, and then money will roll out of them moving into the next undervalued asset class. So there may, there may be two or three moving at the same time, obviously. Um, uh, the best advice I would provide to you is to move to um, some sort of a weekly chart this is what I do. I use weekly charts and I use, you know, quantitative modeling. The simplest way would be to use the old turtle trading system, which is Donchian's. Michael, I'm sure you're aware of the turtle trading system. It's, it's the simplest form for anybody who really wants to understand what the markets are going to do is load up Donchian channels, set them to somewhere between 14 and 21. And the, the original turtle trading system was nothing more than a daily, weekly Donchian high-low breakout system. So ideally, you uh, they wouldn't be buying into anything unless the weekly and daily were, were breaking above the previous Donchian highs. And that gives you an idea of range, especially in a consolidated base bottom. You can just use that as a basic system to determine when a potential upward move is starting. Now, obviously, how you control your risk, how you control your stop, how you control your allocation is very, very important. But if, if people are on this podcast and they don't know anything about technical analysis, Donchians, which are highs and lows, which are the basis of, of all Fibonacci price theory, are all based on highs and lows. The basis of Fibonacci price theory is that price is always seeking new highs or new lows all the time. It is never stagnant. It is always trying to take out a new high or a new low. And if you realize that is the case for all moving instruments, all symbols, then you realize it's either going to be trying to move up and take out a recent high or it's trying to move down and take out a recent low, which is where the Donchians play a big role because they map the most recent high-low ranges depending on your look-back period. Shortest you could run Donchians is maybe a five-day or a seven-day. That would be very short-term. I believe the original turtle trading system ran a 21-day or 21-period strategy for Donchians. By the way, I'm glad you mentioned the whole weekly uh, time frame. I, I always find in my own back test that you know, monthly is a little bit too lag. Daily, you know, can be a bit too noisy. Uh, weekly is kind of a, a nice sweet spot. And there's a lot of studies that would show that when you look at momentum you tend to have more correlation with week-over-week -week strength as opposed to day-over-day -day strength. Correct. And, and that's what I call perspective. I've always, and that's one of the core failures with automated strategies is they'll, they'll you know, look at a two-minute or a three-minute chart and try to make decisions, and they'll fail to look at a 10 or a 20 or a 30-minute or even a daily. And that's why a lot of times we build these multi-strategy systems that are, you know, they're taking the entire perspective in the market 
Um, another key function that a lot of people like to use are, are Heikinashis. Heikinashi charts are great charts, but remember, they're false data charts. You cannot rely on the data on that chart, but they do provide great trending capability. Um, but again, yes, Michael, you're 100% correct. You need to, if you're a longer term trader, or if you're taking a look at something and trying to decide whether to buy or sell, remember to go back to a daily and a weekly just to confirm the longer term perspective. You do not want to be buying intraday dips in a longer term daily, weekly downtrend. You will get chewed up repeatedly. Talk about um, trading systems in periods where an asset class is not doing all that much. So, yeah, I always go back to if you did a momentum automated trading strategy on the S&P 500, you did great the last you know decade plus. If you did the exact same momentum trading strategy on emerging markets, you got whipsawed to death, right? Because you didn't have a cycle favor uh, emerging markets. I, I want to apply that line of thinking to gold, which you know maybe now is starting to kind of break out and you know, get into its own secular cycle. But how does one think about uh, following a trading rule when the cycle is not favoring a particular asset class that's being executed on? So in gold in general, I have my own view, and that is, is that we're reliving the 2002 to 2006 timeframe right now. We're entering into an early, very early stage rally phase in gold, which a lot of people don't understand in my opinion, we're nearing what I call the first stage, the end of the first stage, which is called the setup. And we need to get above the previous high uh, in gold, which is uh, 2089.20, I believe. And we haven't done that yet. Once we exit the setup phase, then we're going to move into a breakout phase, which will put gold up to about 27, 2800. And then we're going to move into an extended consolidation period from there, possibly lasting six to 17 months, roughly. And then from there, we'll move into what I call the expansion phase, which really is the, the 2009 to 2011 big, broad expansion like we saw, uh, uh, you know, uh, after the global financial crisis. So for all you gold bugs out there, you know, you're going to get probably another chance below 2000 to get in. Uh, and we'll probably see another chance maybe around 2000, 2100. Um, in 2024. But after that, I don't think you're going to see 2000 again for a while. Um, and I don't believe the top in gold is going to come until 2029 or 2031, somewhere around there, when the real fear starts to set in. We're in a very early stage for gold. Um, but with regards to your question about momentum systems and the SPY, much like you, my rotational modeling system, which is a, a multi-strategy cross-asset system, has essentially moved sideways over the last year. And, and it's managed its risk effectively because the market has moved into a consolidated range, fairly wide range, as you're well aware, Michael, in these wide range trending, you, there's, you know, momentum systems just don't work. So the, the, the only way that you can hedge something like this is to move into other assets or a shorter term time frame to try to offset the risk containment uh, uh, ability of the momentum system. But again, momentum systems work very well when it's trending. They don't work very well in very wide range consolidation flag apexes like we've been seeing. And again, that's very similar to trying to 
you know, run the wrong vehicle on the wrong track. So ideally, this type of a mode that we've been in since 2022 would be much better suited for something that's very targeted, you know, seven to, to, to 20 day uh, targeted range expansion using something like maybe CCI, Bollinger Band Breakout, uh, and running very aggressive trade management. Uh, slower daily, weekly momentum systems just are not going to work in this type of market from early 2022 onward. Now, again, Michael, we're going to get into a phase, in my opinion, near the end of this year, beginning 2024, where momentum systems will start to perform again. So be aware that it's going to be short-lived. And as long as we're containing our risk effectively, the momentum systems will kick back in around December 2023. How, how do most people um, determine when there's a regime change? So as you noted, right, it's, you know, last year it's been kind of sideways, right? And and you can have the best you know, strategy over a longer term cycle, but in a small sample, it can be chopped around just like most other dynamics in markets. Um, and you only really know if a regime has changed, you can argue two to three years after the regime has already changed, right? That's kind of the the difficulty with identifying cycle uh, changes. But for you, as you look at markets, um, how do you determine when um, when the playbook is different, right? Because you're putting out these different months based on other cycles of period you're doing, right? These other time periods, but Aside from that, what what helps you identify that that something's changed in the way the market's behaving? Well, I think you. you uh, I don't know much about your father's strategy. I mentioned to you privately that you, your father, and I may have rubbed shoulders a couple of times back in my early days. I would have been a young kid, probably, to your father. Um, but anyway, I was, you know, in the investment world in 1989, 90, just getting my feet wet around that software project that I built. But over the years, Michael, like you, I built a set of tools. I call them custom indexes. And I run them on weekly and monthly charts for, for my subscribers. Uh, and it helps hedge the market. It helps determine when the regimes change. Um, we're doing it on a weekly and a monthly basis so we can see when you know foreign markets, when large caps, when foreign assets, when different sectors move and start to trend. Um, and I can actually tell people based on studying and reading these what I foresee may happen over the next 5, 10, 12 weeks or months. Um, but of course, I don't you know, I'm not no pro prognosticator. I can't I'm not accurate at predicting the future 100 percent. What I'm trying to do in reading this data, for example, in, at the beginning of uh, or near the end in September of 2021, I was warning everyone to move to, to 80, 85 percent cash and trail your stops that the, the top was coming that it was nearing a, a peak. We need to start protecting any open long positions we have. And this was simply because I was watching my global market index collapse while the U.S. market index was continuing to advance. Whereas right now, I'm watching the global market index advance higher, faster than the U.S. market, which leads me to believe that there's an opportunity in foreign market uh, investments Yet, I would urge everyone to be extremely cautious around the risks involved in the U.S. markets with this top pattern that both you and I believe has, you know, either already set up or is coming. Because I do believe the uh, the between now and May 20th or 22nd, we're going to set up a top. I think we're not going to bottom until sometime after July 4th, maybe well into August and then start to move up from that period. So I would not advise anybody to be trying to take aggressive positions right now 
simply because all of my indicators suggest that we're going to be topping within the next seven to 10 days and moving downward for the next 60 days. But when a regime change happens, you're right. We cannot predict it as per se. We can simply watch for the uh, telltale characteristics in custom cross-market analysis to say something's going on. Something is changing because in a global market environment, in a strong organic economy, you're going to see the U.S. markets and global markets move somewhat in tandem or at least move generally higher as a, as, as a whole collaborative. When we started to see in 2021, the global market started to fall apart before the U.S. markets reached a peak. And that was a surefire sign that we were seeing risk, tail risk, so to say, increase in the later stages of 2021 ahead of the top in 2022 in the U.S. markets. Uh, so what I'm saying is that you know, under that scenario, some people would think naturally, okay, time to short equities. And I think a lot of people um, underappreciate the challenge of shorting, especially in a regimented, automated trading strategy type of uh, methodology. Um, do you find that it's easier to develop long strategies versus short strategies, even if you're being tactical on shorting, that from an automation perspective that – interaction of false signal uh, to shorting uh, ends up being problematic? Or, you know, is it true that there can be some real good systematic short traders? Well, short meaning short in the market or short meaning shorter term trade? Okay, so shorting the market provides its own risk. And generally in automated strategies, you have to write separate short market controls. So a long trade is going to be handled differently than a short trade. And the general rule, as you're probably well aware, is that short trades, uh, downward moves are typically two to five times faster than upward moves. So you have to be very aggressive in protecting capital, reaching your targets, adjusting your targets, managing that trade very aggressively in a short downward type of a market move, even on false pullbacks. Now, quantifiable or adaptive learning technology which is a, a means of not just relying strictly on, you know, a, a stochastics or a, a Bollinger Band breach or a Donchian breach, something that is actually quantifiable that can measure the uh, the aptitude, so to say, of a potential short trade or downside market breach becomes critical because you're going to get a lot in an uptrend. You're going to get a lot of these, you know, four and a half to seven and a half percent type pullbacks, especially in the volatility we've seen over the last two or three years. But again, shorting the markets should be done when the uh, when uh, tail risk signs are becoming evident. And what you're going to see in those types of uh, s- setups is you're going to see, for example, you know, disconnection between global markets. You're going to see excessive, uh, you know, uh, a bond yields in the sense that bonds are going to reflect some sort of a uh, risk environment that wasn't around before. Um, and you're going to see disruptions in currency markets. Those are areas where, you know, short trades become more opportunistic, typically in an upward trending market where everything is running fairly smoothly, the economies are running smoothly, we've got fairly easy um, equity policies with the global central banks and the Fed, you know, these types of events aren't going to become evident. Uh, the, the best advice I have is, like I said, in automated strategies, the only advice I have for anybody considering this is that short trades cannot operate on the same rules, 
parameters and and processes as long trades. They have to be developed as a separate mechanism to contain risk more effectively and target objectives. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a real problem with trying to just run the same strategy long and short. It doesn't work that way. The markets don't work that way. Short moves or downward price moves tend to be very violent, very aggressive, uh, and they they can end very commonly in very sharp V bottoms. For those that want to learn more about uh, testing, developing automated strategies, um, what piece of advice would you give and what skills are needed? I mean, I'm going to assume that you know, there's a combination of basic Excel work alongside some, some R coding type of uh, backtesting, but you know, talk about just what n- new new uh, automation uh, strategy developers should be thinking about. Okay, so let's say you think you've got something that you 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 think works. Hypothetically, you've got a setup or a trade that you really think works. The very first thing you want to do is start documenting it and start trying to write the basic rules down, long and short. And then, as I mentioned to you, the two most critical things that any strategy developer must focus on is, number one, failure. Focus on what causes your system to fail, where you can improve the system's risk management or setup or quantifiable features, filters, whatever. The system is, when you when you develop a trading system, like all human nature, humans are designed to want to find success or opportunity or happiness, whatever you want to say. We just, we're not wired to fail. We don't do things to try to, you know, chop off our arm or chop off our head. That's, that is inherently not allowed in our brain. Um, so when you build a trading system, you're designing something that you think is going to work. And hopefully you've seen it work over and over again. What you typically do is you ignore the failure side of it. or That wouldn't have been a trigger because of X or Y or Z, or I wouldn't have taken this one because it didn't look right. You want to, and mathematically, computers can't do that. So you want to try to focus on failure as you're studying how to improve the in-trade management. And that is the second thing you want to try to do. Study the in-trade management. Study how much risk the trade is taking. Study where quantifiably the best, most opportunistic target ranges are. Yeah, you may see a bunch of trades that move, uh, you know, 200 points or something. But in reality, they're not all moving 200 points. And there's going to be areas where you might find that only 10, 20, 30 points is a real opportunistic zone. So you want to understand how to manage the trades efficiently once you get into the trades. And then you want to secondarily look at the fact that is it better for you to get out of the trade in the opportunity zone and wait for the new setup? Or is it better for you to take additional risk and let something potentially run the extra 60, 70 points, whatever's left? But the very first thing you want to do is document it, write your own rules, and then focus on failure, where it's failing. Now, at that point, if it withstands that test, now you move into how can I contain risk better? How can I understand the failure of the system? Because a lot of times, and I teach this to clients, I I tell clients, what's the difference between odds and probability? Michael, I'm sure you're probably well aware of this, but odds of rolling a number one on a six-sided dice is a one in six odds, correct? What are the probability of potentially getting five number ones in a row? Probability of doing something like that is probably, I'm going to guess, but probably around, you know, uh, 3,000 to one. Okay, but 
the markets and your system can move into a, a probability factor that you are are unprepared for. So when you build a strategy and you are not prepared for failure, and I've seen this happen, I've literally seen it happen where the one in 3,000 chance happens and continues to happen for two or three weeks in a row. And that's why I tell clients when you're running a back test on a strategy and you're looking at risk containment and it, it shows hypothetically it could risk $15,000 a week. Okay, that's good. Okay, now add an extra 10% to that. So call it 17 or 18,000 and then turn around and now multiply that times three or four or five. And that is your worst case scenario if you fall into that odd probability where it just falls into a continual failure event. And that's where you have to be aware of the system actually moving into these cataclysmic type of events. And, and believe it or not, they happen. Okay. A system can perform. I had a guy in Israel send me a system one time. He sent me the first chart, went straight up, almost a perfect 45 degree angle. And he asked me to help him fix it. And I said, what's wrong with it? It looks perfect. And then he sent me the second chart. So for a year and a half, it went straight up. And then in six months, it lost all the money and ended up $180,000 in a loss. And I'm like, oh, you built a buy a system. You built a system that's only capable of trading one trend, the upward trend. And when it turned around and went down, you were incapable of containing your risk in the process. And sure enough, it destroyed the entire equity curve of the system. So again, you have to prepare for the fact that what you think is moderate risk could be three to five times that level in an unfortunate event. And you have to prepare for that by building broader risk containment systems. I think that's a uh, great place to wrap this Twitter space up. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Brad here. Aside from Twitter, Brad, how else do people see some of your work? Uh, well, go to my website, ment.com. I do a little bit of posting on LinkedIn and Facebook, but mostly I focus on Twitter. I like Twitter. It's it, instant, and I got some good people on there that are following me. But remember, I've been kind of in the shadows for the last 30 years, so I'm kind of new to Twitter. I don't know my way around very well. I've been under contract for the last 20, 25 years with different people and really just started posting because I wanted to try to help people. I see the next three plus five years as being very difficult for traders. So I figured I'd put some of my stuff out there, see if people liked it, and you know, try to help people navigate this crazy world in the markets. Uh, thank you for joining. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.